Hello and welcome to Resourceful, stories from the site, proudly brought to you by Resources Unearthed. At Resources Unearthed, we help executives, professionals and business owners in mining and resources to be successful both personally and professionally. We've created this podcast to help you in your employment or business, and we'll be chatting to people who have a proven track record of success in the industry. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're joined by Julie Forrest, who works as a growth facilitator in the Australian Government's Entrepreneurs Program with delivery partner Deloitte. Julie has a variety of experiences both in and outside the mining and resources industry, and in this episode, shares her career journey so far, including how she got to where she is today and the specialised skill set that led her to her current position. We discuss Julie's exciting role within the Entrepreneurs Program, providing the unique service that gives SMEs in mining and resources access to expert advice and financial support through government grants. As we discuss the industry today, Julie reveals her passion to see a fundamental shift in the way we embrace technology, including blockchain. Julie shares her advice to those in the early stages of growing their business and why she encourages people to embrace who they are as individuals and not change for anyone. Hi, my name is Brett Cribb, Managing Director and Founder of Resource on Earth. Welcome to Resourceful Stories from the Site. Today, we're speaking with Julie Forrest, who works as a growth facilitator in the Australian Government's Entrepreneurs Program with delivery partner Deloitte. Julie's had a variety of experiences, both in and outside mining and resources industry, but each experience holds a strong core element of business development. Welcome, Julie, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So to kick us off today, could you give us a brief overview of how you started in the industry, you know, finishing with your current working role with Deloitte, and you've told us a little bit about a couple of things you might also be on, but and the Entrepreneurs Program. So I started originally in hospitality, and I started actually in housekeeping in the laundry department, and I worked my way up over a number of years to sales and marketing and became the director of sales and marketing for some of the leading five-star chains. I then went for a short stint at Nextbike Computer, which was Apple's computer company here in Australia before Apple was physically on our shores and was the national business development manager for Apple Nextbike. And then I went on to take a maternity leave contract as the head of marketing under an engineering firm called Parsons Brinkerhoff, which people would now know as WSP. And they were looking for a marketing manager that had extensive client relationship management skills because of my hospitality background and director of sales and director of clients, I obviously had some experience in that. I loved working in the engineering field and as it turned out, I was quite technically minded and after the maternity contract was ended, they put me into the position of team leader of coal seam gas when it was just starting to take yeah. off in Australia. So back in 2006, showing my age, yeah. we were all learning together. So I was able to understand some of the really intricate points of engineering and, and really enjoyed it. As the delivery started to go from engineering into construction, I moved across into latent contractors where I was in the oil and gas team and led the client side of the delivery of the APLNG program. And from there, I went across to HSE Mining and did some contract mining 
initiatives and then went back to John Holland, back into major infrastructure. The old gang from Leighton's was getting back together in Holland, so they invited me across to join them. After a short period of time, there was a redundancy because of lack of projects with the buyout of John Holland, and I went across to work in Downer. And we were doing some great projects in Downer. Very fortunately for me, Downer made the decision that they didn't want to be in engineering and construction anymore. So again, fortuitous round of redundancies, (laughs) and it gave me the opportunity to apply for this opportunity with Deloitte, which was helping small businesses work in the mining and oil and gas space. I didn't think I stood a chance. They invited me along and uh, asked me if I'd work with them, and I have been there ever since. Yeah, it's amazing. So at different places you end up from, some people say the same to me about mining engineering to financial planning. <laughs> same, same but different, yeah. Could you tell us, you know, how you progressed to where you are now, including the kind of skill sets that led you to that position? So a lot of people tell me I've got three main superpowers. My first superpower apparently is that I don't just listen, I hear. So I can understand what the client's actually trying to tell me. So I genuinely genuinely hear what they're trying to say. I also play chess with in my head with all of the options available and I evaluate all the possibilities and eliminate the risks and casualties. So I pretend that everybody in every department is a piece on my chessboard and before I move my piece to where I'm going to move it to, I actually think about how it's going to affect each of those other departments and people. And thirdly, I learned how to negotiate and close deals. And when you can close deals and close big ones, you become a commodity and a commodity that people want to buy. And when people know that you can offer them big returns, they generally expect a designer price tag and that's the businesses that we work with. Mm -hmm. So what I can do now with my position in Deloitte is I was on the side where I squeezed a lot of the clients when I was forming big consortiums, took their margin right down and made it operatable for them but not really, you know, profitable for them. So using the knowledge that I have from all of that tier one experience, I now work with businesses that are between $1 million and $100 million, helping them to understand what the big tier ones want from them and I also help them understand how not to get squeezed and loosen that noose from around their neck a little bit. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I know you've worked for quite a few of the resources and construction industry contractors over time. Have you found anything different with the companies you advise now and the things that have stood out for you when you've looked at them? The smaller businesses generally have incredible skill sets. The people who have gone out on their own They have wonderful ideas in niche areas. What they don't necessarily understand is how to be project ready for what bigger projects or governments want to buy. So sometimes they don't have the systems and processes set up correctly. Sometimes they don't have their commercialisation strategies in place. Sometimes they don't know how to use their networks properly. So... What we can help with is getting them project ready to be able to go into businesses using my expertise from my past history and say, okay, what type of project would you like to get on? 
Do you like to get on a big mining project or you'd like to get on a, a sort of a, an oil and gas project or a METS project or a supporting project? And from that I can say, okay, well, let's have a look at your systems. The companies are probably not going to buy you at the moment because you don't have this system. So they're going to want to see what systems you've got not necessarily for safety, but it might be a financial framework that they need to know that you're not going to be insolvent. They might want to know that you have a recording history for QA, all of those types of things that they don't know. They also really don't back themselves with their commercialization strategy. So they'll put rates in front of me, which are eye-boggling. You look at them and you go, really, how are you going to make any money charging a contractor that? I think you should triple that. And they go, but what if they don't want to pay? They don't back themselves. So I love the fact that these incredibly brilliant people who have got really valuable products and service to sell don't know what they don't know and they don't value themselves. So valuing themselves is the biggest tip that I can say. Look yourself in the mirror. If you think it was a great idea 10 years ago, it's probably still a great idea. Let's just get your business acumen a little bit up to scratch so that people want to buy it. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I found over many years dealing with engineering professionals, you know, and professionals in the space, construction, construction, mining resources, how they value their time might be fairly underrated or how they value their expertise and whatever it is that they're doing. It applies in the reverse directions when they're dealing with other people. How they value their professional services can sometimes be different or their intellectual property is or whatever it might be. They've got this great idea. Like they may have designed this fabulous concept for a bridge or a detailed design and this bridge has come to life And they go, oh, that's just my job. And it's like, no, you did this really amazing thing. Would you give yourself some credit? Oh, it's just my job. Yeah. (laughs) You were talking about negotiating and closing deals before. You know, what sort of tips would you give to people in the sector when they're negotiating and closing deals? What's the sort of things you might think about in that area? It's not science. It's basic common sense. It's just most people have a fear of asking what they want. So for me, when you're trying to close a deal, one of my most common things I ask my client is, I really want your business. What do I need to do to get it? Yeah. That I find most people get a little bit confronted with. But when they understand that you really do generally want to help them with their project or or get their business, they suddenly start to sway a little bit more towards, hmm, we might want to work with this person. So that's one of the key strategies, actually asking for it. The second key strategy for it is when you're going in to negotiate, know your terms and be prepared to walk away. Many of the big negotiations that I've been involved in, and I don't want to mislead anybody, I have teams of lawyers that are accompanying me to those meetings. I'm not there on my own. But what we do decide beforehand is I've met with the client six or seven times before that negotiation in that room and we've said, I'm probably going to challenge you on this. Mm. Yeah, okay, that's a no move for us. We're not going to move on it. Okay, so I've got to look around that one. Yeah, you've got to look around. So nothing is really a surprise. Mm. We've had conversations. We've had me and the client one-on-one. So we know our, our wriggle room. And then when we've understood the wriggle room space, 
and we'll bring our lawyers in and our commercial people and they can dot the I's and cross the T's. Mm. Nothing's a surprise. If you're going into a negotiation in a boardroom setting and you don't know what the outcome's going to be before you walk in, you're in a spot of bother. Yeah, 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 interesting. Can you tell us now a bit more about your work as a growth facilitator with Deloitte and how you work with mining and resources businesses? Because I find this sort of area fascinating, working with businesses to try and grow and what they do and seeing some of our clients that have done it in the past, those sorts of things. It's really interesting, I think, for anyone who's new in business or starting businesses or running businesses, what you guys do in that area. It's a funny thing for me because I've always had a tier one background. I've never owned my own business. I do now, but I haven't done previously. So the concept for me really came from my work in tier ones where I pulled consortiums together. And when I was pulling consortiums together, I would be looking for those small businesses that had those niche services or skill sets that I knew we needed for the project to be the best project team that we could put forward. So I always had a fascination for these incredible people that could start their own business and actually start to employ people and watch them grow. Always wished I could do it myself. Don't know that I ever had the courage to do so. So this offered me the opportunity to explore a little bit about that And I never really knew whether the information that I held in my positions in tier ones would actually equate to being able to run a business. So the Oz Industry Program is a government-run program that is what we call an entitlement program. So if you earn between $1.5 million and $100 million and you've been involved with an ABN and a company for three years, you're entitled to get a grant, providing you're in specific sectors and it's not a business as usual type of service. You apply for the opportunity to go into the grant. Most businesses get reviewed in Canberra and approved and then you're assigned a facilitator. We then set up a discovery session, have a chat with you. It usually takes three or four hours, so we get a really good understanding of your culture, of your systems, of your processes, of your clients, and really your ability to perform the tasks that you're promising to the client. What then happens is over the course of 12 months, we give you a roadmap within six to eight weeks of first meeting with you and go through the process of saying, here's some recommendations and suggestions of what might help grow your business. And then we work with you to put those into action. So we have a team of specialists, some digital transformation people. We have B-Design people, a whole gambit of specialists that are in the Deloitte team that we have a ring fence round. So we can reach into the greater Deloitte to get things but Deloitte can't reach in to us and get our clients' IP or information. So it's a really nice one-way mirror that we have the ability to use. And we hold our clients' hand for 12 months and assist them with getting a government grant to be able to put those recommendations into action. So we might say it would be really great if you had an opportunity to bring some sales training 
to your team and we would write, we suggest you get a suitably qualified consultant to assist with the sales training program. And then we help them with the government grant to get that up and running. And then we work with them to make sure that they're actually following along the path so that they can grow. It's very rewarding and I keep saying to people I've been kissed on the bum by a fairy and when I tell my colleagues in the industry that this is a thing, everyone's like, no way, and I'm like, yeah, it's a thing. (laughs) That's it. It's really good. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that you've talked to me about is companies being project ready. You talked a little bit about that, but what is a company that's project ready, you know? It depends on what the projects are, of course. Project ready could be anything from being financial to a company that has all of its QA sorted out, all of its safety, you know, with the safe work method statements ready to go. It's ISO'd in its credential area. It's resourced up so that it's known the project's coming so that if I ring them and say, you know, hi, Brett, I need your team on board, you can say, yes, Jules, I've got 12 people ready to go. When do you want them? So actually having the capacity, the capability and the willingness to be nimble and move when the project needs you to move is really what we refer to being project ready. It sounds easy, but it's certainly a challenge for businesses big and small. But we try and give people enough notice that something of interest is coming to the market in six to 12 months think about what you need to do to get project ready. Yeah, excellent. So for our listeners out there that are in the early stages of a new business or small to medium enterprises, what advice would you give them? Culture is king. If you have a great culture and people want to work for you, that is three quarters of your battle done. It's so important to have an engaged team and a team that trusts you because if you have that, you've just invited innovation into your business. You listen, you learn, and you don't dismiss ideas. Part of what I enjoy most about pulling consortiums together was I would have people who were semi-retiring in their 60s and I would also bring in new graduates who had only been a year out of university and we'd put the problem or the challenge up on the board and I delightfully refer to the more senior as the silvers. The silvers would get up and they'd take charge of the room and they'd go, we do this and we do that and they'd do all their calculations and whatnot. And then you'd glance out of the corner of your eye and you'd see these young graduates going, I think there's a better way. And it's like, Jacob, get up, tell us what you're thinking. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. And it's like, get up, tell us what you're thinking. And they would come out with some really clever ideas. And my silvers would be sitting cross-legged, crossed arm in the back corner going, that's a dumb idea. But then after a little while, they'd all warm together and pretty soon the magic would start to happen. Mm. And that was because we liked to offer a culture that invited that. And when you invite that into your culture and everybody is a team player, then you have 
a really remarkable business. Yeah, that's right. It's something that's consistent for every business and our business is no different to all of that. It's like getting the right culture, listening to people, sharing ideas and having people willing to doing that. And yeah, it's really interesting for any business, I think, all of those sorts of things. I had a wonderful boss who I would work for again tomorrow if I had an opportunity. He's much younger than me and he has this philosophy that he has a team and we're all part of a team and whenever the team wins, it was always acknowledged that the team won. Whenever something went wrong and we didn't get the success we were hoping for, he always copped it. He was like, my team did a great job. That was my fault. You don't get that enough these days. Yeah, yeah. But he is one person that every single person that's ever worked for him would go, do you need a kidney? You can have one. (laughs) (laughs) There's a few special people you work with over time, isn't there? And I certainly found that in my time in the resources industry, that's for sure. If you could take yourself back, Julie, to when you first started in the industry, what advice would you give yourself? I get asked this question a lot because I do mentor a lot of young men and women. And I'm going to say in the immortal words of In Excess, don't change for you and don't change a thing for me. When I joined the industry, I was consistently challenged to change my clothes, my hair, my personality. I was always told to be more conservative, be less left of field. You're not going to fit in, Jules, you you know. And for those that don't know me, I do have very different coloured hair all of the time. And people would say to me, you're never going to fit in in this industry. And I took a lot of that to heart. I didn't change, but I took a lot of it to heart because it's like, well, it doesn't matter what I look like so long as I can speak the speak and deliver professionally what my clients are after. Why does it make any difference? So I I battled with this for 20-odd years. Ironically, it's my personality that has got me where I am today and the changes of colours of my hair and all of those little things that have since become my trademarks. There's not a C-suite in this country that I can't get into and I'm very proud of that. And part of the reason why I can get into that is because people know that I'm just that little bit left of field so my goodness, what does she want to talk to me about and what is she going to say to me? (laughs) And then secondly, it's actually my brain and my knowledge of the industry and my knowledge of what my customers want because of my research that keeps that door open. It's a revolving door for me. I can walk in and out whenever I want. And that has been because I'm that little bit different. And my key message to myself or anybody who struggles with the challenges of trying to conform is be bold, be smart, and be you. There's no point being anyone but you, isn't it? (laughs) It takes a lot of effort to be fake. (laughs) It does. There's a lot of people that say fake it till you make it, and then there's a whole thing that's around fraud it till you're on it. So (laughs) Interesting. The other thing is thinking about the businesses you've worked with recently, Are there any trends or new concepts you found interesting lately? Any sort of themes in the industry you're seeing or something about the, you know, about the future you're sort of interested in? So I'm going to insult most of the C-suite and say that we're supposed to be mining, not fossils. Our industry 
refuses, for whatever reason, to embrace technology. We look at technology, we talk about technology all the time, but no one will actually make that brave step to actually engage with technology. We only started using drones for survey about six years ago. Other industries have been using drones for surveys for 10 years. Even blockchain. Blockchain's fascinating, and I'm not talking Bitcoin. I'm talking true blockchain. A colleague in Brisbane who owns a a very successful company, her company does blockchain on diamonds. So they have every chainage of every particular part of the diamond trail so that they can ensure those diamonds are not blood diamonds. Now, I've spoken to all of the big houses, Rio, BHP, Fortescue, I've spoken to them all directly. What are you doing about blockchaining your tyres? What are you doing about blockchaining some of the other commodities so that we can validate where this comes from? We've got it under control, Julie. Yeah, I don't think you do. Like, really, what are you doing about it? No, no, we've got it under control. Well, you go to other industries and you say to them, hey, what are you doing with regards to blockchain? Like the racehorse industry, for example. They're like, oh, Jules, this is amazing. Let me show you. And they'll go on ad nauseum for four hours about all of the exciting technology strategies that they've got around being able to trace in what they're doing. So I have to question whether or not we as an industry are brave enough, courageous enough, talented enough or technically minded enough to move into that space? I don't think we are. I think that the PMS, as we call them, the pale, male and stale, at the top of the rungs are not leveraging the opportunities because they don't understand. And if they stepped outside of their office for five seconds and stop looking at their P&L and start looking at how they could streamline and make things better, they would understand that technology can drive their outcomes faster. I also see some of this in some businesses where they start dealing with a big business and then the big business tries to take it all in-house and do everything themselves because they think they can do it cheaper. And I wonder whether they just stifle the innovation at that point by trying to do it themselves. I don't know whether that's it. What you're talking about in terms of not having it under control, are they trying to do it? They think they can do it all themselves? It's a typical contracting model, isn't it? Mm -hmm. We'll do it in-house for three years and then we'll throw it out to a contractor for three years and then we'll bring it back in-house for three Mm -hmm. years. I genuinely believe that they are trying to, but doing quite a lot of research and homework into this, it's become part of my passion, as you can probably tell from my voice. I believe that they don't want to let people know that they don't actually understand how this works. It's an ego thing that they're not feeling like they understand the technology as well as they should. So there's a little bit of a fear about looking silly because they don't understand what this actually means. And it's okay because none of us did. It's taken us all a lot of years to be able to understand how this can work. So embrace it. Don't be frightened of it. There's brilliant new small businesses that are coming up with fabulous ideas that can make your life easier and get your bottom line to where you want it faster. Mm, While you're talking, I can think of quite a few small, mid-sized businesses out there that are trying to do some of these sorts of things, but some of them I can think of have sold their wares to the mining companies and then someone's decided they can do it in-house better and others are struggling to sell it to the companies, you know. And that stifles businesses' innovation as well as their enthusiasm. Yeah. A question for us from the financial side of things. Uh, 
if there's any financial guidance you give to someone in your position or younger, what would you tell them? Spend your money. Spend your money on what matters most. Financial compensation for the stress and the hours and the expertise that we provide to essentially what is the backbone of Australia, it's really enticing. They're good salaries. Mm -hmm. Be smart with it. I was fortunate that I had a colleague refer me to what I like to call my financial personal trainer who just sort of checked in with me and sort of said, Jules, have you thought about your super? Dude, I'm 30, you know, like I'm not retiring for 30 years. I don't need to worry about that. And they're like, well, look, you know, you're putting in the minimum. Did you know if you just upped it a little bit, this is what it could mean? I mean, yeah, you know what? It's really not that much skin off my nose to put an extra couple of grand in, whatever. And again, at that age, you're not thinking about it, right? You're thinking about all the things. The overseas trip, I want to go first class to USA. and But having someone with their feet on the ground and their head in your space is actually incredibly helpful because, as I've alluded to, those high salaries comes with high risk. The redundancy has to be factored into that. One day you're going to wake up and you're going to walk into that office and they're going to go, thanks so much, don't need you anymore, and you're like, wow. When did that happen? (laughs) What just happened and what am I going to do? And that has to be factored in whether you think it or not. It's a really clever thing to think about. It will happen one day. You don't keep that sort of salary without that high risk. So my suggestion is think about what you can do today that's not going to change your lifestyle dramatically today but will change your lifestyle dramatically in 10, 15, 20 years. So I'm now at a point where I look at all of those conversations that happen on the morning shows about this is where your super needs to be when you're this age to retire, and I think, wow, is that all? I've got way more than that. And the only reason I've done that is because I had someone who had far more savviness than me to be able to guide me, and that was with regards to my wills. It was with regards to beneficiaries. It was regards to superannuation. It was with regards to all things that were personal and financial to me. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm 52, I sit back and go, wow. Yeah. I wished that I knew now what I knew there but was very grateful for somebody walking me through it. Yeah, and you can think about it this way. Yeah, we're in our 50s and it doesn't seem that long ago we were 20 <laughs> or 30. And if you did nothing about it when you're 20 or 30, it can backfire pretty badly by the time you get to 50. And I've seen that over time myself, obviously in my career, but I think exactly what you said, it's having someone to help you early on can really help in the long term. And you don't have to do a lot. That's right. It doesn't have to be something that you're looking at your salary each month going, oh, what happened there? You know, it's such a subtle little change to your everyday life that makes such a significant change to the back end. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So to finish us off today, because um, I think we're running short on time now, what was your funniest or most memorable story from the site? My most memorable is a little trick that we play on people who don't necessarily get out to site very often. And when we're staying in the camps, 
I'll use the Dysart Peak Downs camp, for example. It's a, probably a 20-minute drive. So you'd be at camp and you'd go and have breakfast and you'd say to everyone, all right, we need to rally outside so we all need to go in to site together. So go back to your room, get everything sorted out, and we'll see you back here in the car park in, in five or so minutes. And then you'd turn around to the people who had never been before and go, oh, and by the way, you might want to go to the bathroom before we leave because it's a bit of a hike. So they'd get to site and... For those who haven't had the benefit of going to site, the SAC, which is the site access compound, you have to undertake a little test where you put your hands in a little sack and you pull out a green ball or a red ball. And if you pull out a red ball, you've got to undertake a drug and alcohol test. So sure as God made little apples, Junior always gets the red ball. So, of course, they've pulled it out and they go, okay, you've got to have a urine test. And then they look at you with these eyes like, but I've just been. <laughs> so they actually have to sit at sack. We've all bailed. We've all gone and made ourselves at home back in the site. And poor young novice is sitting back at the sack waiting until they drinking as much water as they can until they can actually pass their drugs test. And it is quite daunting for the new people and it's a gag that we pull quite a lot. Many times, yes. <laughs> Well, Julie, thanks for joining us today and for giving our listeners some insight into growth and development for SMEs in the industry. It's been a pleasure to have you here and so thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. If you'd like some more information on the Deloitte Entrepreneurs Growth Program, please reach out to Julie via LinkedIn. That is Julie spelt with a J-U-L-I and you'll see her details linked in the show notes as well. So thanks for listening. And if you have a spare minute, we'd love you to leave us a review via your favourite platform and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of Resourceful, stories from the site. We'll be back in a month with more tips and insight from our other industry leaders. We'd love to connect with you. You can find us on all the usual social channels and our website, resourcesunearthed.com.au. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite platform so you never miss an episode.